Hi, this is Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And this is Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts, Two Jews on the News. I'm actually thinking of our opening lines, Jonathan. I'm in Tel Aviv and you're in London. And uh, there have been a lot of tectonic shifts in this country happening over the course of the last few weeks. Um, but there's one thing that's very evident and constant. That is exactly what we're kind of trying to dissect here in this podcast, that Jews in Israel and Jews in diaspora are not the same. And we go through different experiences and we have a different point of view. And obviously this week, uh, we've been experiencing the rocket attacks and the eternal flare-ups, and you have been experiencing uh, anti-Semitic incidents, obviously every time tensions here uh, rise. So so a very different kind of reality with obviously a common thread. I did a very Israeli thing, and I just started talking without letting you say anything. No, I think you I went straight in there. But look, this is why we started Unholy, really. I think yeah. this was the uh, our animating founding thought, was that there are events which affect both but look really different depending whether you're inside or outside Israel. And that's partly the conversation I think we always wanted to have. I don't think we necessarily wanted the (laughs) demonstration example, the proof of the necessity of this to come quite so early and in quite such bloody fashion. But uh, there are always these moments where uh, it looks different depending where you are. And I think it's just been so stark this time where this conflict just does look, uh, you know, 180 degrees different depending where your vantage point is. Yeah, and when we started this about uh, what one pandemic, one election and 4,000 rockets ago, <laughs> we actually didn't uh, <laughs> think there would be so much. We knew there would be a lot going on. We didn't know there would, you know, be so much going on. So I think we could both use a little bit of boredom uh, on both sides of, uh, of our conversation. But um, maybe we should start by uh, talking about what's been happening uh, in Tel Aviv and in London uh, yeah, in this since I, we last met. I think so. I think you you fill us in on on how things are actually playing out in the in the actual sort of physical war, and then we can then talk about this perhaps in some ways almost equally important virtual uh, perception conflict that goes on around the world. But yeah, I, I you know how, how's it been being on the ground? So on the ground, we are on the uh, 11th day of the operation named uh, Guardian of the Walls. Uh, It looks like a ceasefire is imminent. President Biden, who does not wish to be kind of dragged over the Israeli-Palestinian cliff, um, hit the brakes. Um, And it looks like neither side can can achieve more. What it means, actually, is that these are kind of the hours and the minutes that everything is even, like the tensions are heightened because everyone is trying to achieve a last-minute uh, uh, success in any way, right? So just to give a for instance, Hamas hasn't shot anything towards Tel Aviv in, in, since Saturday, uh, but it, does, it doesn't mean they can't. They just want to sort of save that for the last uh, uh, barrage that might happen today or um, tomorrow. Uh, at this point, there are uh, 227 uh, um, killed in Gaza out of them, 64 children. There are 12 uh, uh, Israelis killed, two of them children, as I said, 4,000 rockets fired in Israel in 10 days, which is close to the number that have been fired at Israel throughout all of the days of Protective Edge. Um, and uh, Which was for, in 2014. Which was 2014 and lasted 51 days. So you just see how condensed it has been this time. Um, four rockets from Lebanon yesterday, probably Palestinian groups, and um, Israel managing to hit the underground tunnels that Hamas operatives use. That's how they protected themselves, not the po- population. Um, and that is where we are. And usually in these wars, you know, Israel quite knows this quite well. You have the front and the home front. 
And now it also seems that we have the Jewish world front, which has been also, um, of course, uh, been something that we, we, we have been seeing from, from here, not from there. Yeah, you and I are speaking on Thursday afternoon as uh, there's all this talk of ceasefire. I have to say that it can't come a moment too soon for people outside, and particularly Jewish communities outside, are desperate for this thing to end because of what it has appeared to unleash. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, this view that in Jewish communities, and again, I think this feels different and more intense than 2014 or 2009, there have been these incidents of anti-Jewish violence or anti-Jewish rhetoric that has surfaced as, you know, in the wake of, in the backwash of uh, what's going on uh, between Israel and Gaza. And the one, one moment which has just partly because of it was caught on video has really gone around the world was this incident in London on Sunday where cars, a convoy of cars went through London and went through a, you know, large, uh, partly Jewish neighbourhood of London, St. John's Wood, with people chanting really vile slogans about Jews and death threats and rape threats. Uh, there was an incident in Los Angeles, again caught on video, where it appears, police there are investigating it, that Jewish diners in a sushi restaurant were pulled out and targeted and again subject to violence and, and abuse. But there have been other episodes in Vienna and all kinds of other places. And it it is illustrated in a very graphic, very vivid form what goes on every time, which is Jewish communities around the world are drawn in to these episodes whenever they happen. There is huge anti-Israel hostility and sometimes it is A, directed at Jews and B, sometimes finds anti-Jewish expression. Uh, And that can be, you know, daubings on synagogues. It can be slogans shouted at Jews. And that creates tremendous uh, anxiety and fear. And so, and just a desire among a lot of people uh, for the whole thing just to be over with and things to go back to quiet even though we and I, you and I were talking last week about how going back to quiet and the status quo is not necessarily a good idea, just in the immediate term, people desperate to not be the subject of the conversation anymore uh, because it can be so brutal and so painful. Do, do you personally find yourself like more vigilant or, or it's, I mean, it doesn't feel like, I mean, these are not normal days. Do you... Well, I, I don't know, like I'll, it. And and, I, and I'm, I'm so, look, two things go on. Yes, on one level... You know, parent, child at a Jewish school, aware of the notes that are being received from the schools, talking about, you know, a heightened state of vigilance. And I see it because my, you know, children ask me questions about it. So, yes. On the other hand, I don't like this discussion because I think that it goes back to something you and I have talked about before, about the fingers in the ears thing. Getting the conversation back onto us as victims rather than what the much harder conversation which is here's israel a country we feel deeply connected with you know killing lots of people now that's you know that sounds harsh and it's not true of all some people are just genuinely concerned and fearful and i feel some of that but i know that there are others who would always prefer the conversation to be jews as victims rather than as bad guys yeah you know i have to say and i'm not sure it's only about this specific conversation but uh, what I've realized over the years living in this country and having disagreements or agreements with people is that you can never 
um, tell someone they're not feeling what they're feeling, right? I mean, you can argue, you can rationalize, you can understand where the fear is coming from and, and what to do with the fear. But I think the fear exists. I mean, when I talk, obviously it exists. I talk to my Israeli friends abroad and I talk to Jewish friends abroad. It, it, they feel very I don't know, vigilant or fearful of what is going on. And obviously um, the discussion that we were having last week and might have a little bit of it this week about what Israel needs to do um, on the strategic level, a strategic level, then that is maybe something they don't want to talk about right now because they're busy being just concerned about their well-being. Yes, I think so. That's right. I think the, that's a good way of putting it. The, the most people, most of the time, those feelings are just fear and anxiety. I mean, in terms of the PR thing and the and the and the way this has been reported. Uh, I find, having said that this was Groundhog Day and here we go again and it's 2014 and 2009, I'm wondering more and more if something really bigger has happened this time and changed. And that is that the the rhetoric against Israel is a sharper. So the accusation is of genocide, of apartheid, of settler colonialism, and it's sharper and it's a bit more mainstream than it was in previous times there were always people on the fringes obviously who were ready to say those things but what i see going on in washington and elsewhere is a kind of mainstreaming of what mm -hmm. had previously been a pretty extreme view of israel you know we talked about human rights watch doing their report on apartheid and you know at the time that was big in the ngo world and the people but now you sort of feel there's John Oliver on TV and there's Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez in Congress. She did a tweet saying apartheid states can't be democracies. You just see some of the rhetoric from the newer generation of Democrats, mm -hmm. some big influences on social media, you know, footballers, rappers, other people. And I spoke to someone who follows all this really closely who said his view is that Free Palestine is now joining Me Too and Black Lives Matter in as just one of the positions that if you are of a certain generation and a certain kind of world outlook, you sign up to wholeheartedly. Uh, and that seems to me a really big deal because for a long time, people like me were warning that if Israel didn't do something to advance two states or, or, or an end to occupation, before too long, Israel was going to end up being a pariah nation. And I wonder if it's happened and happened actually much more quickly than I ever feared or, or more quickly than I envisaged. Well, obviously, there's a, a long list of people who have been outspoken and, and anti-Israeli in this, right? You mentioned the John Oliver and the Trevor Noahs of the world, right, uh, uh, complaining about too many Palestinians dead, and if I understood them correctly, not enough Israelis dead to balance the equation. And you had the Google Jewish employees uh, writing to the company to increase the support of Palestinians, and you had uh, Palestinians activists protesting against Israeli singer Eden Elena in the Eurovision semifinals. And I was waiting for you to say Gigi and Bella Hadid, because that was sort of, I was waiting for the Jonathan Friedland intellectual to mention Gigi and Bella Hadid. You didn't, <laughs> so I will. Uh, but obviously with their, um, of Palestinian descent and their massive incident following 66 million followers and 42 million respectively. Um, you know, this is, as you say, they're speaking to a generation that doesn't know the history of the conflict. Uh, and 
The thing is, Jonathan, and I'm, I'm listening to you, and I, I, I did uh, listen intently last week, although I was after three nights uh, of not sleeping uh, and spending that as in, inside a bomb shelter. Gaza shouldn't be complicated to explain. This isn't the West Bank. It isn't a territorial dispute. It's religion. Hamas swore to continue until there are no Jews between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. There is not one Jew living in Gaza, right? Israel dismantled settlements. Uh, Ariel Sharon was very adamant about returning to the 67 lines. And he said in the UN after dismantling settlements, a very controversial thing in Israel, he said this Gaza will be the blueprint for the West Bank. Israel continues to supply electricity and water and cement building supplies to Gaza while this is happening. Tuesday, a convoy was supposed to bring in aid and was bombarded by Hamas. This shouldn't be complicated. Now, Israel is making its own mistakes in this PR world, right? The IDF on Instagram showing this high-rise building before we bombed it and after we bombed it, when what you should do is explain that you have evacuated the whole building and evacuated the two streets next to it so as not to hurt population, any citizens there, but to hurt uh, the infrastructure. So, you know, I hear people, and again, this is the Israeli point of view, right? And this is, I'm just representing myself here. But when you listen to people like John Oliver or Trevor Noah saying something like, forget history, let's just talk about this week, why are there so many Palestinians dead and, and, and 12 Israelis are dead? And you say, what do you mean, what do you mean forget about history and forget about context? That's why, that's like I would say to you, well, let's just talk about May 2nd, 2011, and there's a compound in Abbottabad, and why did the Navy SEALs kill, kill an old man and five other people? One of them is his son. Oh, okay, but the context is that there was 9-11 before that, and this guy is Osama bin Laden. So the, the thing is, I'm sorry, I'm sounding a little bit like I work for the foreign ministry in Israel, but No one could make that is, mistake. <laughs> but the fact is that you shouldn't be, it shouldn't be so difficult to get this across. And I want you to notice something. We're talking about the heavy criticism, and I think we should uh, talk a little bit more about what's happening uh, in the Democratic Party in, in the United States. That is very important, the voices that we hear there. But we're talking about this. We're talking about the criticism from the uh, American left and from the European left. Where are the Arab states, Jonathan? Are they saying anything besides Jordan and Egypt letting some people get off some, let off some steam? And what about the UAE? What about Bahrain? They are not doing anything against Israel and not supporting Hamas because they understand what Hamas is. So, so I think that we should kind of look at all that and, and say, A, yes, Israel has a deep PR problem. It also has a problem besides having a PR problem. Uh, but in this case, what's I think frustrating for many Israelis is that it should have been an easier case to explain. As I said, it's not a territorial dispute. It's about uh, religion. And you have someone who's saying they want to kill all Jews, attempting to kill all Jews, and actually, uh, unfortunately, succeeding. And you still can't get this message across. No, you can't. And it's partly because the idea, the premise of what you'd said there about Israel is pulled out of Gaza. Uh, and did with Ariel Sharon. That is just not accepted as a premise because Israel still controls what goes in and out. And the uh, blockade, you know, it's you have to struggle to get it mentioned uh, that it is a joint Israeli and Egyptian An blockade. Egyptian but, and that Israel, that by the way, of sure, course, again, I, context, Israel wanted the uh, Palestinian Authority to take control of whatever goes in and out, but Hamas took over the, yeah, the uh, Gaza sure, Strip. But, Obviously, but, there's... But Sorry. the upshot is that people outside feel that, look, Israel controls what goes in and out. They can have a huge say over what goes on. The other thing is it's not separable from everything else people have seen, and that includes the, the events in Jerusalem that kick this all off, West Bank, but also what's going on 
in uh, Israel's own cities. And this is where the framing is really, you know, if I if I was sitting there, both of us are having our fantasies about being in the Israel foreign ministry. This is what would be keeping <laughs> me up at night, though, in all seriousness, is if yeah. this is framed in the through the Black Lives Matter lens, so that Bernie Sanders saying Palestinian lives matter, uh, and people saying, I know what this is like, you know, describing... Uh, the situation, you know, I think uh, uh, it may have been AOC, but or, or someone else talked about uh, police brutality. We know about police brutality. This is yeah. Ferguson. This is Minneapolis. You know, if it is seen through that lens, that is an, a, a, a war and a battle you cannot win if you're Israel. I mean, to if it's lumped in, as we said, with, you know, Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter and Me Too as the hashtag of the age, which, as I said, you know, Premier League football is here just after the game was over, making the slogans and holding up the banners and holding the Palestinian flag. If it becomes that, I don't think the, you know, going back to arguments and saying, oh, no, it's, it's you know, the, the actual facts and details that you were trying to set out or to try and say, claim it's religion, people... Don't, are not seeing that now why is there all of that kind of fervor over this why is this the first foreign policy issue to join that pantheon alongside me too and black lives matter that to me is a really interesting question because you know there there are hundreds of thousands dead in in assad syria there was, it's been officially termed, I think, by the UN, a genocide committed against the Rohingya people in by Myanmar. The plight of the Uyghurs, you've mentioned a million detained uh, in an, an, an absolutely astonishing uh, human rights uh, crime against humanity in Xinjiang province in China. Saudi Arabia pounding Yemen and again, ratching a huge death toll. And here the death toll is a fraction of that. And yet, you know, to pick my own team, Mohamed El Neni, Arsenal player, you did not see him <laughs> protest about those other events after yeah. a match, but he has about Gaza. And, you know, I, I think pro people can complain about it, but that is now the reality. And that has to become part of the kind of strategic envelope that Israel operates in, just as it thinks about what if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, what are our relations with the Gulf states? One of the factors is, in Western opinion, Israel is now seen as one of those lines on which it is very clear where you uh, uh, you should stand alongside those great issues of the day. That has to be part of the calculation. What is the What do you answer when you ask yourself that question? Why Israel? Why are we suddenly, the, not suddenly, why are we one of the most important stories in the world? Well, I have talked about this and I've, I've been talking about it even this week with other journalists because I find it interesting that it is covered in a way that no other war these days really is covered like this, where each individual case, each each death is reported and often, you know, and morally, obviously this must be right. It's reported with the name and the that quote from the grieving relative and a photograph and that is good morally that is how conflict should be reported where every life is significant and has value and you know even reporting on injuries i've seen news correspondents in gaza reporting about broken bone you know somebody broke an arm somebody broke mm -hmm. a leg i had, can't object to that i have to feel that's right and yet i notice 
that they they do not do that kind of reporting in Syria, in Yemen, in Myanmar, in China, and and so you know, or if they do, it's once a it, you know there'll be one report a year and then nothing. Whereas this is hour by hour by hour. So what is the reason? And I've asked journalistic colleagues, and they will they've come up with you know they'll say. It's because there's a you know historic link and cultural association with the Holy Land, and there's great interest in that for that reason. Or they'll say it's because the United, uh, Israel is an ally, and then you know, but Saudi Arabia is an ally, and there isn't the same interest in Yemen. Uh, the two I've come up with that I think maybe are legitimate and interesting explanations. One is how long it's gone on. That fifty-four years. You can't say the same about the some of the other conflicts we've mentioned. Uh, and the other one is that the country. You know, in the dock is and sees itself as part of the West. You know, Saudi Arabia do not send a team into Eurovision, and nor did China, and nor do did Assad Syria, etc. And therefore, held to that standard. I know that plenty of people, and even a voice in me, thinks, "Is it because they're Jewish?" And I, you know, I, 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 I don't like that thought. But it's obviously there. Is there something, and some commentators have been writing this this week, saying that somehow, you know, Muslims being killed by Jews is is a story in a way that Muslims killing Muslims isn't. And mm. that's a bleak thought, but maybe. There's a, a definitive piece uh, by uh, Canadian-Israeli journalist Maddie Friedman, uh, who's also an author. He wrote a piece after the Operation Protective Edge about Uh, he was working for AP and he wrote an insider's sort of uh, guide to why I think it's called the most important uh, story on earth. And it was published in Tablet Magazine. And just I'm reading three lines out of it. He says, when the people responsible for explaining the world to the world, journalists, covered the Jews' wars more worthy of attention than any other, when they portray the Jews of Israel as the partly, uh, party obviously wrong, when they emit all possible justifications for the Jews' actions and obscure the true face of their enemies, what they are saying to their readers, whether they intend to or not, is that Jews are the worst people on earth. So that kind of corresponds to what you said. I don't think that should take Israelis off the hook. I think that it's important to say that the situation of the Palestinians in Gaza is terrible. Uh, and the fact that they are incredibly poor, that they are stuck between two you know, countries, one is Israel, the other is Egypt, they don't have a way out. It's terrible. The, the, their leadership uses them as targets. And, and really, this is, this is a terrible conflict. And I wish that when we end this, and as you said, told me last time, don't go to the beach, but actually think about what you should do. I wish that the international community would pour money on Gaza, would build a, a, a decent infrastructure of electricity and water, and that there would be some sort of inspection apparatus that would make sure that this money doesn't go into terror, and that something will make their lives better Because that would also be better for us. Um, I don't know how I got to this point, by the way. <laughs> no, no. I think the Matthew Freeman thing is really interesting. And that is, in a way, I do think that is part of the thing. If you keep saying, you know, you cover this conflict this way and you don't cover other conflicts, I do wonder if there are people around news consumers who think the only conflict in which buildings get flattened or civilians yeah. get killed is this one because they never see Right. The pictures out of those and other places. And by the way, can mentioned. you name any country that actually makes sure that when they do this, they evacuate the population? Obviously, there are still 237 people dead 
But do you know of any other country that does that? But but um, again, that doesn't fly because you I know, know it doesn't. I know the, the John Oliver take or whatever is you know don't bomb the building. We don't care if you gave a nice little warning or knocked on the roof yeah, first. Okay. Don't bomb it at all. That's so that's, just, that's yeah. how people react. And I think I so what I'm thinking is that I think they would react that way too if it was Syria or Saudi or Yemen or any of these others. But the point is they don't get reported in that hour yeah. by hour way, and that's. Uh, you know, and there is a whole chicken and egg thing. Is is there is there strong feelings about this because it's reported, or is it reported this way because of the strong feelings? And uh, of course, part of the criticism towards Israel is related. And you said that about the Black Lives Matter. It, I think a lot of people don't understand the sort of distinction between Palestinians and the Arab Israelis living inside the Green Line. They saw these sort of civil unrest that erupted this week, and that added to to the criticism last week, we talked about this in our, I would call it our emergency episode that we recorded sometime in the middle of the night, and we called it Land on Fire, and I think it was very appropriate. Um, and I, I was, you know, pointing out that Israelis were more concerned by civil unrest and what is happening inside the mixed cities. And it really felt, and it still feels like this Gaza conflict sort of unleashed the worst demons of, of Israeli society. This week, it looks a little bit better. Um uh, or a little bit, let's say, under control. You had a, a really uh, important event, I think, that Mansour Abbas, the head of the United Arab List, uh, Ra'am, the Islamist List, we talk about him a lot. Uh, he went to a synagogue in Lod that was torched and he said, you know, we need to fix this. Um, so he was reaching out. By the way, we have to note this is a conflict that is not uh, racial. It is is a national conflict that, you know, I have to maybe pause and make a mess of what I've said so far, but there's a a beautiful book by Connie Willis called Lincoln's Dreams, and she, the, the protagonist is a historian. And someone asks him, what are the effects of Vietnam on the psyche of American of the Americans? He says, I'm still trying to work out the, the effects of the Civil War on the American psyche. And in that regard, we talk a lot about 67. One of us was actually born then. I'm not going to name names. But the <laughs> point is that, um, that a lot of this goes back to 1948. Uh, and some of the things that haven't been resolved since. And it it begs the question, what do we need to do now? Do we need to discuss this? Do we need, it's it's a very delicate situation. What do Israelis need to do? What do Arab Israelis need to do uh, in light of this? And, and I think that when you look at it, what happened with Mansour Abbas is an example of trying to fix an extreme problem in an extreme, with an extreme solution, which means we will we will go from, not letting Arabs, Arab parties participate in Israeli political life and not, you know, not they had their own reservations about it as well, to making the Islamist list the basis of the government. Right now, just try and imagine what would happen if Netanyahu actually managed to, you know, construct that government. And now we had a war in Gaza. What would happen? Ram would have to leave the government and the whole thing would collapse. What it means is that there has to be a change. Uh, between and regarding the, the way that Israelis in general treat the Arab population, but that change ha- can't happen in a way that is so extreme to the other side. Am I making any sense about what I'm saying? I think you are. Yes, I think the Black Lives Matter framing has has gained traction because of the fact that it's inside Israel. Now that mm. enables is quite in some ways, you know, no no frame from one country ever maps onto another country but the frame is simple it's easy to grasp and you just think this is the next civil rights struggle so it's uh, it's applicable the the thing i was just going to add was you know that old line about the palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity and i just can't help but feel that israel itself 
has missed a lot of opportunities here because if Israel had moved in the last 10, 15, 20 years, when there was broadly a global consensus for two states and had just you know, stretched every sinew to somehow make that work, after, yes, the failure at Camp David in 2000, but said, right, we're not going to be deterred, we're going to keep going until we get this, the world was okay with that. You know, yeah, two states, 78% for the Jews and 22% for the Arabs. All right, that's fine. We'll agree to that. You know, the 67 borders, in other words. Mm -hmm. the, now, people outside uh, Israel will look at this and just think, what's that about? That's unfair. You've obviously got to, if your frame is, is equality and Black Lives Matter framing mm -hmm. inside a single state, the idea of two states and everything, that doesn't fly. And instead, the demand, which will go ever more mainstream in the Democratic Party, yeah. will be for something very different. And then you know, there will be all these Israelis thinking, God, if only we'd grabbed the previous offer. <laughs> instead, we're now going to be looking at one state, um, which is not what most, most Israelis, and actually, as it happens, most Palestinians want. Anyway, I don't know if it plays out like that. But I, 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 I just think that, uh, this new yeah. framing is hugely significant. It may recede after this this episode is over. But right now, it looks like this has, could be looked back on as a watershed in how Israel itself and the conflict is seen. So um, after semi-agreeing on that, at least, I think we can move on to our uh, honorary mensch of the week. Jonathan? Well, it Some... is it is very sweet. You say you say what it is. I can't say what it is, and then I'll tell you. I'll tell you why we've chosen it. <laughs> Don't you do. I think we should maybe listen to something, and then we'll explain what we're listening to. All right. And it's now ten fifteen on a Sunday morning, and it's time for the first in a new series of programs. You don't have to be Jewish. The program is introduced by Michael Friedlands. You don't have to be Jewish to recognize that music as from just about the most successful show of all time to have a Jewish flavor. Nor do you have to be Jewish to listen to, and I hope be interested in and enjoy the next 20 minutes, the beginning of the first program on BBC Radio ever to be aimed specifically at the Jewish community. Well, what should a Jewish program do? Before giving you our ideas, Listen to what reporters Sylvia Margolis and Marilyn Allen discovered taking their microphone through London. I don't really see the point of having a Jewish programme. Why should we have any more special segregation? But if you do have one, you'll need about four hours a day for it because they'll never stop talking. We are celebrating. We should say we are celebrating. I don't know why you didn't bring any champagne or anything, but uh, <laughs> on my end, we're celebrating uh, the 50th anniversary for the debut of... You don't have to be Jewish, which for a quarter of a century, I think, uh, had BBC Radio tuned to the lovely voice of Mr. Michael Friedland. And related to you, we must uh, we must mention. That's right. That is the name. And that, well, that was the voice of my late father, Michael Friedland. And he absolutely on May the 23rd, 1971, he debuted what was then a brand new program. You don't have to be Jewish. And it aired, as you say, on BBC Radio London. 
and then a different station actually in London for the best part of 25 years. Uh, and we've been marking the 50th anniversary. And what rather wonderfully, BBC Sounds, which is the kind of website and app for all, all BBC Audio, have resurfaced 50 programmes to mark wow. 50 years. So if you go to, if you just Google you, BBC, you don't have to be Jewish, up they all pop and you can see a picture of him. My dad died in 2018. We cleared out, my mother died earlier, we cleared out the apartment he lived in and we just kept on finding box after box after box oh. of these tapes. My my mum couldn't bear how the f- whole flat was taken over with tapes. So she used to say <laughs> to my dad periodically, you know, you have to get rid of these. We've got nowhere for our clothes, for our, for any, for anything. So he would have a cull, but he would always keep some behind that he didn't tell her about. And so when we came to clear out the apartment, I would be, you know, in the airing cupboard and there'd be a stack of towels. And then behind <laughs> them would be 10 more tapes. Anyway, we, my teenage son, Jacob, then set about digitizing them. He got up one of those old wow. reel-to-reel tape machines. And there are, I mean, just some amazing gems in there, you know, interviews with people you'd never expect. I mean, every Israeli prime minister from uh, Golda Meir to Netanyahu who went on the program, British prime ministers, Harold Wilson, James Callaghan, Margaret Thatcher, they were on the program. You know, celebrities, Gregory Peck, when he played Joseph Mengler in The Boys from <gasps> Brazil. Wow. Ingrid Bergman, she was a big champion for Soviet Jews, so she came on. Musicians, singers, writers, artists. It was a, it was a sort of thing in its time. And uh, in fact, we're going to hear a little bit talking about. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say press pause on that because we have some clips. Because I mean, you mentioned uh, Yitzhak Rabin, so he, uh, your father, interviewed him in 1982, and lo and behold, it kind of connects to the conversation we were having because uh, I think a part of it is that he says that world, the world, especially Europe, is not treating Israel fairly. We got to listen to that. Mr. Rabin, welcome back to our program. It's been three or four years since you were last with us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a delight to see you this this morning. In a way, Israel suffers from a double standard of the world uh, in its relations to Israel. On one hand, uh, the world expects Israel to behave like a Western country. And at the same time, you forget that as a result of it, we live in a region in which there is no democracy. And the basic attitude of... uh, Expecting from Israel the highest sometimes, more than the European countries, for example, allow themselves when they are at war. By the way, I have to, I don't know if you noticed, Jonathan, but uh, Lior, our executive producer, had to kind of edit some of Rabin's gaps to make him (laughs) talk a little little faster. It's great, though, that voice, isn't it? Just the depth (laughs) of that voice. I mean, I always thought my father had quite a deep voice, but then you hear Rabin, it's a different story. I mean, he he was, and that was a whole half-hour interview. That's one of the 50 programs, so you can hear that again. And the thing about him, I realise now, is that he was really ahead of his time because in two ways. The first is he was just really out as a Jew in a time in the 70s where people still kind of whispered their Jewish identity, especially in Britain. They were kind of quiet about it. And he was just this loud, noisy Jew. But the other thing I think is is great is that he was thought that you didn't just then do that you know he had a whole other career writing about show business and the movies he thought you can be both you know you can be jewish and british just as people were jewish and american one thing listening back to all the programs is i've realized how how much things have changed you realize when he was broadcasting about israel he had an assumption 
especially in the early years of the program in the 70s, that the audience would basically be sympathetic to Israel, that they would see it as the David surrounded by hostile Goliaths. This was just a few years after 67. And he kind of just took that as read. You can tell that he doesn't feel the need to explain or be defensive. And there's just one little bit which to me completely captures that, which is it's from the Bar Mitzvah episode, uh, which is when the program marked its 13 years, and he called it the Bar Mitzvah episode. You know, these were not words heard often on the BBC then. Yeah. But he called it the Bar Mitzvah episode to mark 13 years. And you'll just hear this little sequence. In fact, you just hear both of them. It kicks off with Barbara Streisand. Uh, Barbara Streisand singing the Hatikva, Israel's national anthem in Hebrew. And then it's a followed by... Uh, it's followed by then British Prime Minister Harold Wilson talking about his encounter with Golda Meir. Barbara Streisand singing Hatikva, Israel's national anthem, long before she thought of playing in a film called Yentl, uh, a girl who really does have to be Jewish. But this programme's title says it all, as far as we're concerned. You don't have to be Jewish to listen or to take part. The former Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, now Lord Wilson of Rivieux, has been my guest on many occasions, this time remembering the lady who was the first voice in our programme last week, Golda Meir. I didn't know I was seeing her because the Labour Party conference was in London and I was dashing from outside meeting to outside meeting and dinner and I was there, then she came in. So I just got up and kissed her. And, of course, the diplomats were very, very worried and telegrams came in from all the Arab capitals. Foreign office didn't know how to reply. I said, you just tell them I'll kiss who I want. And if they want an explanation, it was just sex. So you hear that. And, you know, <laughs> the, the, the point about it is he's realising that, that Harold Wilson is, not just the programme, that the audience kind of think, you know, any Arab states that had a problem with him being friendly with Golda Meir, well, that's on them. You know, the audience, the Labour Prime Minister, the programme, the BBC, all think it's fine that he was being friendly to an Israeli And also Prime that he could get away with saying what he said uh, in know, the 70s. I know, that, that wouldn't pass the today. Me Too test now, would it? <laughs> but one thing... Uh, I realise, which I, which tickles me a bit, which is I used to go with him to the recording studio and it was every Thursday morning and it dawned on me the other day, you and I often record this podcast at around 11.30 or 12 London time and that was exactly the hour he sat in that studio in the BBC recording, talking about the Jewish world and talking about Israel and here I am, literally 50 years later, and you and I are doing the same thing. And that's how, it's our homage to uh, to uh, Michael Friedland. By the way, we could have stolen his great title because it's a fantastic title. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't let us, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I suppose, is there family-owned copyright? Who knows? Maybe we'll I don't know. It. If we'll... someone could steal it, 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 would, it would be you. So yeah. I'm just saying. No, no one's going to the whole name, the whole title to... Uh, to uh, to you don't have to be Jewish. Yeah, it no, fits, I, I, I put anyone on notice now. I'm I'm going to come after you <laughs> legally if you try and steal that title. I'm sure he would have called, put, picked us up both on our on our presentational style. He would have had lots to say. <laughs> He'd have had lots of editorial notes for both of us. 
That's fine. Uh, so you said that this uh, will all, that this a special program will air this week, right? So no, well, all of the 50 programs are available on oh, the BBC wow. website. And certainly in Britain, I think it may take some time before you can hear them uh, outside Britain, but they will be there. And uh, yeah, and then if you are really committed, uh, on Sunday evening in uh, JW3 are doing an hour long program uh, tribute really to to mark the 50th anniversary that will be me along with si- historian sir simon sharma uh former leader of the israeli opposition bougie herzog and karen pollock from the holocaust educational trust lots of others we will be yeah. talking all about this and perhaps we'll put the details in the show notes so you can click on yes that as and well. uh, bougie herzog may be the next president of the state of israel if you're already plugging in some people yeah, well, uh, right. officially and- and, uh, and, and, why, and, wh- and why is Bougie Herzog on? Because his father was the Jerusalem correspondent for You wow. Don't Have to Be Jewish. Chaim Herzog <laughs> spoke to my dad week in, week out through the 80s until he was called to higher things and became the country's president. <laughs> this is good stuff. Uh, we should say thank you to some people who have to be Jewish. Our executive producer, Leo Friedman, and uh, Rom Attic, head of uh, podcast, and Irad Escher for original music. And let's hope, Jonathan, that next week we could just go back to, I don't know, talking about coronavirus or anything else that isn't rockets and, uh, and other things that we have been uh, preoccupied with. That would be good. And we would be very true to the spirit of You Don't Have to Be Jewish, which always signed off with my dad saying, and thanks, and as always, Shalom. <laughs>